Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. During the current crisis, many companies are finding that they need to innovate rather quickly in order to survive. Today, we feature a conversation on this topic between senior partner Eric Roth, who leads our global innovation practice, and Kevin O'Leary, a Canadian entrepreneur best known as one of the investors on the American TV series Shark Tank. What follows are excerpts from Eric's discussion with Kevin on how he thinks about funding innovation and new businesses, including during a crisis. Eric, over to you. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Roth. We are unbelievably honored to have a very special guest join us for this podcast. Kevin O'Leary probably doesn't need much of an introduction for anyone who's ever seen Shark Tank. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, a global personality on innovation and new growth, and really uh, excited to have him share some of his perspectives on the world today. Obviously, as we reflect on the world today, we, we have to acknowledge that uh, we're in just an unbelievable time of uncertainty as the crisis from COVID-19 is affecting so many different uh, businesses, uh, families, friends in so many different ways. And so hopefully there'll be some insights that we can share uh, and some perspectives that will be useful as people think about uh, how innovation might play a role in hopefully creating some light at the end of this tunnel that we all find ourselves in. So with that in mind, uh, Kevin, uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Eric. Looking forward to it as well. You've seen probably more startups, ventures than many of us will see in a lifetime. If you step back and reflect on the current state of affairs, what are you seeing? Maybe from what can start from the lens of, of ventures, uh, new businesses. What are they struggling with? What are they dealing with? What are you observing uh, across the landscape? Well, obviously, these are unprecedented times. I've seen sales declines. That's been around for companies that are failing for decades. But to see an entire economy shut down is putting tremendous stress on small business in America. Because, you know, if you take a typical company, and I'll, I'll use my anecdotal stories here because I've got over 50 in my portfolio, something like a Love Pop Cards, a company with, let's call it a $50 million run rate, uh, half of its sales are, are in retail, and some of the most expensive retail in America. And then in a matter of 48 hours to lose 50% of your sales, that requires a just thinking out of the box, which is what you expect an entrepreneur to do. And something remarkable happened. We were preparing to have a draconian cut in salaries. Then the, the PPP bill comes, and, and I know America is going to debate the merits of this bill for decades to come. but what the bill said was that they would take a snapshot of payroll at Feb 15th and they would take another snapshot June 30 and if both those numbers were the same or the June 30 number was higher the potential to have the loan forgiven was very high this is extraordinary this is a unique asset opportunity it's helicopter money from the sky I've never seen it before what it tells us is we're not cutting anybody's salary because we're gonna lose the option to get the loan forgiven so how are we going to finance it? Because we're not getting the helicopter money for at least five to eight weeks in most cases. Well, that's when America changed. We called up the landlord and said we're not going to pay them. It was obvious we take our largest expense, what's going to be the landlord. And that happened 50 million times all over America that weekend. And REITs and private owners of, of real estate, all of a sudden we're in this incredibly difficult position. 
If a REIT said to me, well, we're going to have to file a complaint, and I said, please, if you have to do that, send me the complaint. I'll post it on my social media to 4.2 million people, put your picture beside it, and list all the American families you're going to push into welfare. And we'll start there. And I know that's awful, but I'm going to do what I have to do to help these companies survive. So my whole point about this dissertation, it's a long answer to your question, is I'm seeing a permanent impairment to retail space in America for two reasons. The company I was talking about, Love Pop Cards, they turned around and were able to replace all of their retail sales by getting into the flower business because all the flower distribution centers are closed. So they've been laser cutting paper bouquets, selling a million a day worth of them across America, direct to customers. We're now 400% ahead of forecast on free cash flow without any retail. What do you think is going to happen there? And then another permanent displacement is we've decided, now that we've been running the business for almost two and a half months remotely, we don't need all our office space in Boston anymore. We're going to cut that down by 30% and save 7 to 11% free cash flow. Yeah, so there's two things I think you touched on there. I want to, I want to take one at a time. So one, uh, just dramatic shifts in business models that are happening. So your Love Pop example, you went from retail-based cards to online to now flower bouquets, which is, is very, very clever. Other companies are going through the same transition. The irony in some of these situations is that because they were a, a fixed retail business model initially and sort of added on online as a new channel, the cost structures are unbalanced. The margins, ironically, are lower on the online versus the offline. And they're also facing digital natives that have been born online uh, and know how to actually be very agile, you know, using social media and all the other different uh, avenues they have to reach customers. So how can you advise or help companies to think about what to do when their business model literally flips overnight? Well, what I find is, and I make investments in large cap companies as well, they do not have the ability to pivot the same way entrepreneurial companies have. Primarily, they don't have the same stress of survival that a small company has. It has to make its numbers, so it has to do whatever it has to do to get there. And that innovation is the, the hallmark of, of entrepreneurs. But for some reason, I find that at the end of the day in large cap companies, they really fight this kind of innovation. I've done lots of joint ventures with telco companies, only to be disappointed that you can't get anything done at a table with 25 executives. Nothing gets done. They have lost their DNA to pivot, and they're going to have to learn pretty fast now to do it because they have no choice. What, what happened here has forced companies to rethink so much, for example, remote work. I would have never done that to any of my companies. I wouldn't trust the technology. I wouldn't trust you know, the time shifts. I wouldn't want to rock the boat, but I'm forced to do it, and now I'm seeing all kinds of opportunity to cut costs primarily at the expense of landlords, but there's other places and other suppliers too. And I'm now hiring digital assistants in other countries at a lower cost. I'm working 24 hours a day now across multiple time zones. So I actually am an optimist, Eric. I think what's going to happen to American business is we're going to come out of this two to three years from now with enhanced efficiency in American business being forced on us by what's occurred here, but also learning to use technology in a way we would have never done before. I have bought more licenses from companies like Zoom, Shopify, Microsoft, Amazon, Tencent, 
than ever. I mean, my CapEx in technology in the last three months is, it has to be a, a tenfold to what it was just three months before so, that. And so to so me, is, that's good stuff. Yeah, so is this an opportunity? Because, you know, let, let's take the small versus large companies and stay with us for a minute. So small companies, as you said, they can pivot, they can, they can evolve their business model pretty quickly. Large companies are cutting costs back, right? They're tying down whatever they possibly can to ensure uh, spending decreases. We can we have surveys on this. We're seeing it across every industry um, all over, and pulling back on perhaps some of the investments that you're referring to, which could enable greater productivity, connectivity. They might be investing in Zoom or Microsoft Teams or, or other licensed Skype or, or other licensed. Uh, for, for connectivity, but I'm not sure they're thinking as forward as you just suggested. And what, what's the lesson that companies can take to be more agile, think about what's going to be the next normal, prepare for that, whether it be on the productivity or the technology side, and not get caught up with just managing the thing that's right in front of them today? First of all, I would tell a large company, take advantage of this chaos. In chaos, there's opportunity. If I were working in a large consumer goods company now, or a B2B business or whatever, and I was a manager there, I would take this opportunity to go and steal customers from my competitor by doing everything I could to develop a direct relationship with them. I mean, that is really what is occurring right now. Most of my companies want to have a direct relationship with their customers because it's almost like a subscription service. If you can build that trust and that relationship, same thing with large companies. They've been using two-tier distribution, in some cases three. Take wine, for example. All of those retailers, many of them, have shut down because they're also servicing restaurants and they can't afford the skinny margins as a result of three tiers of distribution that they sell through wine. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, QVC starts shipping 48 states direct cases of wine. They become one of the largest purveyor of wine. It's a single tier distribution from the winery to the state, right to the customer. Who saw that coming? They pivoted that so quickly, their sales are up 200% just in that category as a result of thinking you know, on their feet and saying, wait a second, nobody can go and buy wine at the local store. Let's sell it direct to them. There's thousands of examples of that going on. But a large corporation that's not taking advantage of this chaos, they're poor managers. Tell me who they are, I'll sell their stock. So with that in mind, if we think about some of the large corporations that actually have pivoted, there's auto manufacturers that are making ventilators. You can say, well, if you're making a ventilator, why aren't you a med device company? Because that's a better market than the auto industry today. So why not just continue to pivot and keep going where the opportunities is? And you could almost tell that story across so many of the, the large entities. What, what do they need to do to get the confidence to, to go and make those turns uh, to a new opportunity space and then, and then take the scale and the resources they have and turn it into something great? Well, look, let's stay on that theme because you brought up something very interesting there. Let's talk exactly about that, the automotive and the automotive part manufacturing industry where I have investments and I have talked to CEOs there in the last three weeks. What's happened to, to us in America is we've learned that we cannot rely on foreign suppliers of healthcare products. Why wouldn't you take 50% of your capacity to start making the things that are going to be domesticated here in the U.S., Canada and Mexico. The Canadian dollars collapsed. That was a, you know, an oil-based economy. Why wouldn't you set up manufacturing there and manufacture for U.S. suppliers of, of masks and face masks and coats and whatever it is that you can do? By the way, that aforementioned company, Love Pop, is cutting uh, face masks right now for Mount Sinai Hospital in New York because they have one of the largest laser farms in Vietnam. 
three football fields full of them. So the whole point is pivoting like that makes sense to me. A great leader can go to their managers or to their boards and convince them it's time to pivot. That's the kind of leadership that's going to emerge out of this crisis as stars. And the other ones that do nothing and just stick their head in the sand are going to lose their jobs in about 18 months. I predict that's going to happen all over the S&P 500. So, so let's flip the argument for a minute and say, let's go from big to small. Unfortunately, one of the consequences, as you've pointed out, from this crisis is there is going to be a displacement of employment. People will need to find new jobs. If we could take this a mass of talent and, and hopefully some entrepreneurialism somewhere in the mix there and turn it on creating new ventures that are responding to the changes. You know, America was born on, on you know, invention and innovation. Do we have the possibility of unlocking the next wave of that given all this talent that is going to be out there, presumably uh, high quality and looking for something to do? The, the big question to me, and I haven't decided on this yet as an investor who has to make some sectoral bets, is will there be enough innovation in this cycle caused by this unique black swan event to replace all the jobs that are going to be lost? And I'm, I'm going to argue that the permanent impairment of retail, well, retail clerks are going to lose jobs. But at the same time, distribution centers that support direct selling to customers are going to grow bigger. Think about this, a big box retailer. Obviously, if their customers now want to have the products sent to them instead of going to get it, maybe they cut half the retail space and they keep the other half for a distribution center. That's the kind of thing I see happening. And I think we're going to see that all over America, which I think is going to happen as a result of behavioral changes. And it's not a bad thing, it's innovation. But is that a perfect displacement one-to-one? -one? The analogy to me is, is what happened in the print-to-digital transition. I remember back in the days when the internet just started, investors said, when things go online, if a dollar of print ads are worth a dollar on paper, it's going to be worth a dollar twenty on the internet because you're going to reach more people easier and faster. That's not what happened. A dollar of print ad turned into one cent on the internet because the distribution was ubiquitous and there was tons of competition. And so is that the transition we're going to have. Just take Shark Tank, for example. I'm looking at, at mm -hmm. the 100,000 applications that people are coming up with sitting have, have in their the basements. Applications, have yeah. the applications gone up uh, as a result of doubled. this? They've doubled. doubled. But, you, but you, know, you know what's coming? People are really interested in their health in a way now they've never been before. It's not just about eating granola instead of hot dogs. It's how can I live my life so I never even catch a cold? What changes to my life would I make? All of a sudden, people are saying, hey, I don't, I don't want to get sick ever of anything. What do you got that can help me do that? So it's not just the, the, the end of handshakes. You know, social distancing will have some permanence in our society for quite some time. And then the new businesses that are going to get set up to help make that happen. Yeah, and I believe that the population will emerge from this saying, I want to live out the rest of my life a much healthier person. That may include diet, but it's also going to include not catching the next virus. And I think products and services and modifications to think about an airline. I want that thing to have UV lighting. I want it to automatically spray disinfectants that kill viruses. I do not want to sit beside anybody. I don't want any middle seats and I'm willing to pay the difference. I think everybody's going to start thinking that way. Reconfigure that plane and show me 
a testing system at the airport that makes sure no one with a fever is getting on board. So, so here's an interesting question. Given what you said before, should we expect those solutions to come from the next 10 episodes of Shark Tank? Or should we expect those solutions to come from corporate America? They'll come to Shark Tank first, because corporate America never can move, move as fast as an entrepreneur with a good idea. And then after that entrepreneur builds their sales to 250 million, they'll be bought by some company. I mean, innovation really occurs in a basement and often from someone who's, who's thinking outside of the box. So maybe it is time to start thinking like an entrepreneur if you're a large company in a way that has never happened before. And I'd like to think that can occur. Many businesses are rethinking how they operate, where their future might lie. If we look back on the last crisis, many new companies and particularly business models emerged. As we look to this crisis, what are you starting to see in terms of glimmers of hope where new business models are emerging, new companies are starting up? I'm a bit of a history buff and I try and use examples of what occurred in like situations to determine what might happen going forward. And in the case of innovation, particularly in financial services, the lifeblood of entrepreneurs is the ability to raise capital. In 2007-2008 financial crisis, the markets for capital for growth companies dried up. There was nobody that was going to give anybody any money for a startup that had any kind of risk whatsoever. And, and out of that uh, necessity came two new platforms which are household names today. Indiegogo, for example, everybody knows, and Kickstarter. And lo and behold, they became behemoths worldwide. The same thing is happening right now with a different category. It's equity, crowdfunder equity. Instead of just funding inventory of a new product, you can actually raise equity capital through crowdfunding. And it's one of the only markets that's open right now. And this is partly as a result of the government providing democratization to venture investing. A few years ago, the Jobs Act was passed and the, the, the SEC and the other regulators said, why is it that only very sophisticated venture capitalists ever get to invest in companies like Google or Uber or whatever the next innovator or disruptor is? Why isn't the common man given a chance to do that? And the Jobs Act provided for that. The idea is that you can list your company on a crowdfunder platform and people, including your customers, can buy $100, $50, $20, $1,000 worth of equity. Now, for, for years, no one got any critical mass. It, as often, a new innovation doesn't get traction until someone figures out why it doesn't, didn't work. And it was, there was no one platform that had enough investors on it to attract deals. And then along comes StartEngine, which was an idea from a guy named Howard Marks, who was the co-founder of Activision. He said, why don't we try and attract hundreds of thousands of investors to the platform? It's a chicken-egg problem by bringing really good deals to the table first. And that's what happened. And now they have about 200,000 plus investors and they raise hundreds of millions of dollars on that platform. But that doesn't mean they're the only one. There's all kinds of crowdfunding equity platforms all around the world trying to emerge, just that he's right now the head of everybody else in terms of deal flow, investors, and deal size. That is a result of the fact that no private equity firm, no venture capital firm, and I can't find even banks that will lend to startup. And as a result, we've got a new platform emerging. And I think that's innovation. And it's, it really is as a result of, of, of necessity. I think that's a, that's a really cool example of the emergence of a new business model in response to a clear shift or discontinuity in, in the overall investor space. 
Does that then, if you flash that forward, should we worry about venture capitalists? Are the days of venture capitalists numbered? Here's a real issue for venture capitalists. And one of the reasons that I took an equity position in, in StartEngine and, and actually formed a relationship with them is my concern for this one fact and how disruptive it is. Let's take a typical venture capital firm that's been around for even 40 years, the big ones in Boston and Silicon Valley. There's one thing that equity crowdfunding does that they can never do. You can actually sell your equity to your customer. You can create hundreds or tens of thousands of investor slash customers, advocates for your company that have no timeline on their investment. So a typical VC would take 30, 35% of a company and have a five to seven year horizon and put all kinds of covenants on their equity, pref shares, ratchets. None of that happens on equity crowdfunding. And so when an entrepreneur says, well, I can go to a VC and have a very concentrated investment and a five year time horizon, or I can go to my customers and offer them to share my vision and share the ride with me and become an advocate for me as a shareholder, I wonder which one I'll choose. And I bet you if we go five years out from here, equity crowdfunding is going to be a vicious competitor to private equity and to venture capitalists because VCs and PE companies will never be able to provide that. And I think that's why you're going to see a, a rapid erosion of their place in the pecking order of capitalization. I'm betting on it and I've invested on it and I'm going to play both sides of the fence. So that seems like a disruption in progress for sure. You had mentioned in our previous conversation the impairment of real estate. So there's another pretty significant potential challenge that those, whether it be REITs or, or other commercial uh, real estate operators are going to have to face. How should we think about it? Or are there glimmers of hope for how owners of those, those, those assets should start thinking about new business models or what they can do with, with, you know, with all, given all the traffic is down? Well, I like to look at it this way. I'm always trying to be a realist about major changes like that. And I asked one of the operators of one of the sovereign funds who takes care of the real estate portfolio. And what he said to me was, we have done incredibly well over the last 22 years. It has been a phenomenal investment outcome for us. And now we're going to give some back. I said, that's your answer? He said, yep, that's my answer. I said, there's no pivot, there's no you know, optimism. He said, no, we've done very, very well and now we're gonna give some back. And that's a realistic answer because let's just take triple A office tower New York City or Boston, the best real estate assets in the world, cap rates three to four percent. You know, at the peak, only a year ago, the valuations were insane. Okay, so now we come out of this sometime next year and you've got 7,000 people jammed in that office tower in Boston. They're gonna have to change how many people go on the elevator, no one's gonna touch the buttons, the office space has to be capexed to have small cubicles with special ventilation. So one answer could be, well, there's gonna be a massive explosion of new shared space because people are gonna utilize it differently in lower density uh, configurations and the current real estate footprints of most companies is obsolete relative to what it's gonna to need to be. There's another question, well, you know, maybe this is all temporary and we, the vaccine comes out and, and two years from now, we come back to whatever the next normal looks like. 
do, do you believe that's the case or, or are we just going to snap back to something in the middle, which is looks quite different and then becomes a platform for all sorts of new opportunities? Well, it's not the temporary health impairment I'm worried about. It's the fact that we allowed both large and small companies to go through a remarkable experiment where they have learned that probably 20% of the people in their office never have to come back there again. Using technology and giving them the ability to stay at home for all the reasons people might want to stay at home, including raising children and taking care of parents and not wanting to commute, they simply won't go back to those towers. I'm not that optimistic about real estate. So we possibly have two large opportunity platforms. One, how do we reconfigure people's homes and all the ideas and businesses you can start to become more effective workspaces? And that could play out in so many different directions. And then the second is we've got, you know, between 25, maybe 50% of, of current top end office space that needs to be repurposed for something. Uh, and what, well, what will that look like? Traditionally, the repurposing was to condominiums, but I'm not sure I want to live in an office tower when maybe I don't have to be close to the city anymore and I can live with a much bigger backyard and raise my kids in a different environment if I can be one of the 20% that never has to come to the city unless uh, maybe once a quarter. I'm not sure the demand for that kind of living will be the same. I mean, you have to think big picture. It's not the end of the free world. It's just that the, the capex to convert an office tower into condos is a lot of money. And you better make sure the demand is there for it. So maybe it's not a permanent impairment, but it's, it's sort of like my, my asset allocation issue. I used to have almost a third of my net worth in real estate in one form or another because it was stable and it appreciated 5 to 7% a year. And it, it had cash flow and all of the wonderful things I like about hard assets. I have now reduced it to 8%. And I'm going to wait because there's another concern I have about, that's a long duration asset. Here's something we haven't talked about that we, we need to deal with. It's the thousand pound gorilla in the room. When you helicopter in $2.1 trillion into economy in 11 months and maybe another $2 trillion, remember that old world in, concept called inflation? Well, maybe that's coming back. And, and you don't want to be in long duration assets in inflation, and particularly not at a time when unemployment may be an issue. Just because it was great for the last 30 years doesn't mean it's going to be great for the next 10. Well, I think that's always, you know, as we put the sort of the, the innovation lens on this, assuming that something that worked in the past is going to be true in the future is probably one of the biggest mistakes we see. Any assertion that one makes is more likely an assumption. And if that assumption is based on experience that they proved out historically, well, I wouldn't want to bet on that necessarily at all. So as you think about the people out there who have an idea, who are the future potential entrepreneurs, what's the best advice you can give them and how to bring their business to life given the current context of uncertainty? If anybody were to charge me with starting any business anywhere today, like right now in lockdown, um, I think there's some really interesting tools that people weren't using efficiently that they could. As people sit at home all around the world, captivated by streaming video, spending hours on social media or gaming, there's never been an opportunity to speak to them the way you can now. And there's lots of anecdotal evidence that companies, even large and small, have found ways to do it in the last two months and have been very effective. I'll give you an example. 
when we used to solicit our own customers with offers with direct mail in the old days, that was nine weeks ago, our response rates were 2%. And um, that was a great campaign on social media, 2%. We have campaigns going on now at 15 to 17%, where people want to support products and services that they like and brands they've trusted for a while. That's unprecedented in my life. So I'm just saying if you're going to start, get hip to social media, get hip to message, get hip to a direct relationship with a customer, and build a business because, frankly, people are happy to buy directly from you if the customer service is great. So even though we are socially distant, the things that are keeping us closer together, the digital, the virtual, could be the keys to unlock the next wave of entrepreneurialism and new ventures. I would even be more concrete. The genie's out of the bottle, and we're never getting her back in. I bet you when we come out of this, we've gone from 16% online retail to 25 in a matter of months, and it's never going to be less. There are a lot of companies that will be really excited about that news and far more that might be really disappointed. So, Kevin, thank you so much for your time again. Um, this has been wonderful. It's amazing to get your perspectives, and uh, I hope we get a chance to, uh, to do it again sometime soon. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it, Eric. Take care. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of this conversation will also be posted soon on McKinsey.com. To reach us directly or suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at McKinsey.com. If you'd like to stay connected to our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, we encourage you to sign up for email updates on our practice page on our website. You can also follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy and connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.